Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and before we get started, I feel like I should mention, and this is kind of hard to believe, that this week's episode is our 100th. I'm personally incredibly grateful to all of you who have downloaded and listened to the podcast every week. I hope it's been as interesting to you as it has been fun for us to produce. To mark the occasion, we have our first ever double header on the topic of Tunisian democracy. Tunisia, of course, was the first domino in a series of popular uprisings around the Middle East, known as the Arab Spring. After the toppling of dictator Zini El Abidine Ben Ali in 2011, the Tunisian people have worked towards building a stable democracy and have found some success, especially when compared to other nations that went through a similar process of upheaval. First, you'll be hearing from a man who played an instrumental part in keeping the fledgling democracy together after assassinations of prominent politicians threatened to break it apart. Mehdi Joma served as acting prime minister beginning in early 2013 and ending this February after voters elected a new government and prime minister. He stopped by the Kennedy School to deliver an address at the Institute of Politics JFK Jr. Forum. After that, you'll get some more context from Dr. Paul Salem, Vice President for Policy and Research at the Middle East Institute. So, without further ado, here's former Prime Minister Joma. So, I should say recently former Prime Minister. Uh, you left office just three weeks prior to this interview, I think? Yeah, in fact, three weeks, yeah. So, the Arab Spring hasn't been um, without its risk. Uh, and certainly transitions of power have been part of that risk. What's your perspective on the transition of power that you just experienced? Do you think it's gone well? Yeah, of course. Uh, we don't forget that it's a process. It's not uh, just a, a shift. No? It's a process, a long process. And when you see in the history, all these big changes, revolution took time. And uh, since we are in the modern uh, world today, we, uh, we have the impression that uh, uh, everything is running at the rate of a television uh, series. But it's not, it's not like that. And hopefully in Tunisia, we took four years to, uh, to succeed uh, in the transition, in the political transition. But in my sense, uh, it will continue for a long time because... Uh, uh, we have to consolidate all that, and uh, we need a couple of years. And I think for even for the whole region, it's maybe more difficult, but uh, it will take uh, more time. But uh, I'm still confident that uh, with the energy of uh, the young people, we will succeed uh, finding some stability and uh, rebuilding the world on the basis of some fundamental, for some universal value, which is important, and make us, all the communities, all the people closer. Many see Tunisia as an example of one of the more successful countries that went through this process of upheaval and the establishment of democracy. Do you see any particular keys to why Tunisia was able to overcome some, you know, incredible, any any time a democracy is, is created, it, it overcomes incredible obstacles? I think that Tunisia has some specificities. Uh, you know, we are sharing a lot of things in the region, but we have our own specificities. Among them, this tra tradition of dialogue and of compromise, uh, as well the level of the education. You have uh, well-educated and high-educated people, and it helps uh, the, the, the strength of uh, the civil society. We have a big civil society, and when each time there is a crisis, they put a pressure on the political class to find an agreement, and they succeeded this uh, this uh, this time with the dialogue to 
appoint uh, a new government, which I led, but as well, uh, they pushed uh, to find an agreement on a constitution, which is a secular one now, which was voted by 92%. Uh, so these a couple of factors like that that helped a lot. The contribution of the women, you know, uh, now in Tunisia and since the independence, uh, uh, we are in a big trend of uh, equal rights between men and women, mm -hmm. and they are very present in the civil society and everywhere uh, in the country, and really they helped in the crisis to push. So such specificities help to accelerate uh, this process. What do you see as the role of secularism in your country's transition? Obviously, religion has been a major pain point for a lot of countries, your neighbor Egypt included, the question of whether religion should have a role in the government. Well, the, the problem was solved in Tunisia since we voted a secular constitution with the mm -hmm. agreement of all the political class. It was voted by 92%, which is a high, uh, high ranking, a high score, mm -hmm. and among them, the, the religious reference parties. Uh, we know uh, it's not important what is your reference, what is your ideology, what you are thinking. What is important now in Tunisia is to respect the constitution and the law, and mm -hmm. that's the common field, the common domain that we have, and the common rules that we have to share together. So we don't have any problem. A secular constitution respected by everyone, even though uh, those have uh, religion, uh, uh, religion thought or religion reference, and they are allowed, like the others, to exist since we respect the law. And in the respect of the law, we have to avoid any violence. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the Arab Spring began in Tunisia. Is that a point of pride within within the country? Is there any feeling of responsibility that you know we get, we we, we kind of started this wave? Uh, we have to get it right. No, we. Uh, it's like it's not like that. Uh, we we are part of the, the, the this region, and uh, what we intend today and what we hope is uh, stability, peace, and prosperity is more uh, than who started and who began, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, how we can all together build together the future, uh, give uh, hope to the people, and give stability, peace, and prosperity. And now for more perspective on the state of Tunisia's democracy and how it fits into the broader story of the Arab Spring, we're joined by Dr. Paul Salem, Vice President for Policy and Research at the Middle East Institute, who's here at the Kennedy School to lead a seminar at the Belfer Center's Middle East Initiative. So, Dr. Salem, thanks so much for being it's here. It's a great today. pleasure to be here. Thanks, Matt. So, Tunisia has seen its share of problems since it ousted dictator Ben Ali in 2011. Uh, but in the spectrum of Arab Spring uh, uprisings and revolutions, it seems to have fared fairly well. Um, is that accurate? It is accurate. Of the six countries that were hit directly by major uprisings called the Arab Spring, Tunisia is the only one that has made it through to an actual transition that's inclusive uh, and that seems to be fairly stable. Uh, they have a fresh constitution, they've held elections, all the major parties are part of the process. Uh, and I would say they're, you know, they've taken uh, the first major steps towards an actual transition towards an inclusive democratic set of institutions. Uh, among the six other countries, Egypt is sort of stalled in the middle. They had a period with the Muslim Brotherhood, then an uprising against that and a coup. And now we're in a, you know, there is a new constitution in Egypt. 
but there is an excessive amount of repression at the same time, and parliamentary elections, which were supposed to complete the transition and roadmap, have been postponed. Uh, in three of the countries, Syria, Libya, and Yemen, the state has effectively collapsed and we're in the midst of civil wars. And in Bahrain, the uprising was simply put down. Mm -hmm. So yes, you'd have to say Tunisia is a success story. It certainly has uh, a lot of security and economic and political challenges, but uh, you know what country in the region has, and at least they're trying to deal with it and have succeeded so far in an inclusive, institutional, constitutional, democratic way. Is there something uh, about Tunisia in particular that lent itself to that kind of success? Were there specific conditions? And uh, is that something that could be replicated in these other countries? That Yeah, there's a number of conditions that helped, I think, Tunisia succeed. Uh, first of all, it's, um, it's a homogeneous nation, uh, unlike, let's say, Syria or Yemen. There aren't any major ethnic or sectarian divisions. It's all effectively Arab, Sunni, Muslim. Uh, it has a fairly long, uh, in, in regional terms, history of being a cohesive sort of national unit going back at least two centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, it is also um, a country for the region which has a long history of modern political institutions. Uh, uh, Tunisia is the first country that had a modern constitution in the 19th century. Uh, in the region, so there's that that history that helps it. Mm -hmm. It was also led uh, for a number of decades by President Bourguiba, who was uh, certainly a, a, a dictator, but at the same time, he was a very modernizing president, very secular, uh, and he passed uh, very secular laws for Tunisia and helped it, in a sense, move along that uh, line towards sort of accepting secular values and protecting them. Mm -hmm. Um, Tunisia also uh, is not in a particularly contested part of the Middle East. Uh, when you look at countries like Syria or Iraq, they're in the midst of a huge proxy battle between Iran and Saudi Arabia and others. Tunisia was in a slightly calmer neighborhood. Uh, Europe is very close by and that, that was helpful as well. So when things happened in Tunisia, there wasn't any major external intrusion into their politics mm -hmm. and that helped them. Uh, work things through. They also have one of the most vibrant civil societies in the Middle East, uh, women's groups, labor unions. The strongest party, in a sense, in, uh, in Tunisia is the Confederation of Labor, mm -hmm. which is very unusual in, in Arab countries. Mm -hmm. And that civil society, labor unions, women's movements, political parties, played also, as they should, a big role in making sure the transition actually transitions. Mm -hmm. They do have an army, but it's not an army that has been involved in p politics. It's been a fairly limited in size professional army in its modern history. So unlike Egypt, it did not play sort of an intrusive role in politics. Rather, it kind of protected the arena uh, to some degree. And finally, I would say uh, there was some wise leadership uh, in terms of the leader of the Islamist party, the Anahda party, uh, Mr. Ghanoushi. Uh, first of all, he really was the leader of that party. Uh, it was a party, not a religious movement. Uh, and I think uh, he showed sort of foresight and wisdom and so on. And the other sort of national secular camp uh, was led by the current president, uh, Mr. Sipsi. And uh, he too had long experience in politics. And these two leaders 
uh, even at times of great crisis and great danger for Tunisia, I think their presence and their negotiation helped uh, help the process along. So uh, part of it is, you know, good history, a good uh, background, good leadership, and some good luck as well. It seems like that tension between religion and secularism is present in all of these all of these countries as they try to establish some kind of government. Uh, it, obviously, Tunisia had some background in, in secularism. Is that something that's necessary uh, to see success in in governments around the region to find some kind of secularist secularist middle ground? Well, I mean in. Uh in Tunisia and in Egypt and in Libya, the religious versus sort of more secular uh, uh, division in society, particularly in Tunis Tunisia and Egypt, has been the prominent one in the last four years. In uh, the Levant, in the eastern side, uh, the division has been unfortunately sectarian rather than religious versus secular. So it's been Sunnis against Shias, uh, in some cases ethnic Kurds versus Arabs. Uh, so I think different countries in different parts of the Arab world have experienced different divisions. Uh, but I do think that the last four years, uh, because they gave a big opportunity for Islamist parties to win elections and sort of try their hand at politics, uh, particularly we saw this in Tunisia and Egypt, it also created a very serious backlash against them and revived people's attachment to secular values, uh, to kind of a civic society that's defined along national uh, lines, not along religious lines. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, people sense that those social, cultural values, and in some cases freedoms, that they took for granted, even under dictatorships, because many of the Arab dictatorships were more or less secular in nature. They were dictatorships in terms of the political space, which was closed down, but they left people to go about their, their lives uh, uh, and to make choices. Uh, you know, they left that freedom. Uh, and the, the rise of Islamist parties challenged that kind of space that people had gotten accustomed to. So it did create a resurgence of nationalism and attachment to the nation as defining your citizenship, not your religious affiliation. And it caused uh, a resurgence in some countries of attachment to secular civic values as opposed to religious, imposed religious values. Um, is it necessary for a successful transition? Um, uh, I think that having a strong middle class, having an active civil society, having established state institutions, uh, as well as an understanding and commitment to a national, uh, you know, national identities and national inclusion, uh, much of which assumes secularism because it rejects defining citizenship through religion. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I would say that is part of the toolbox that helps countries uh, move towards uh, demo democracy, but, but not the only one, certainly. You mentioned the conditions that created success in Tunisia. On the flip side of things, is there a common thread with the other countries on the things that went wrong? I mean, obviously, each individual country has its own problems, but are there specific things that you can look at that were commonly uh, problematic? Yeah, I think in the case of 
Well, take countries like Syria, Libya, Yemen, even Iraq. The fact that there isn't a very strong homogeneous national society and that there are actually divisions along communal or sectarian or ethnic lines, uh, once society began to contest political power vis-a-vis -a, -vis a dictator, uh, then the question arose of, well, where does political power devolve to? Does it devolve to my community? Does it devolve to some other institutions? Mm -hmm. And in the absence of functioning political systems, like political parties or parliaments and so on, uh, because these were not functioning democracies, once uh, power was contested from the dictator, it devolved in most cases to these subnational units such as community defined by sect or ethnic group and so on mm -hmm. and quickly began to tear the nation apart uh, and you see today Syria is not you know it's torn apart Iraq is torn apart Libya is torn apart Yemen is torn apart uh, another factor uh, is uh, the regional context uh, Syria and Iraq are contested by major regional powers. And once a bit of trouble crept into Syria, this was like a lightning rod which attracted immense uh, regional intervention. And that helped bring that, you know, brings the house of, helps bring the house of cards down and then, and then you have a full proxy war. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, decisions made by leaders. Uh, you know, history at the end of the day, there's forces, there's dynamics, but there's choices. As I mentioned, choices made by Tunisian leaders helped them move towards uh, transition. Choices made by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt led them to a confrontation with the majority in the public, then a confrontation uh, with the military. Choices made by the military created certain scenarios in Egypt as well. In Syria, the choice made by the regime to react to protests calling for reform, to react with you know, uh, guns, torture, and bloodshed, mm -hmm. Uh, that decision, uh, you know, decisively pushed Syria towards uh, civil war and then effectively uh, national disintegration and, and effectively state collapse. So mm -hmm. choices are critical. And the choices that are made in the coming months and years by regional powers, by the U.S. and others, uh, can help perhaps, you know, mitigate some of, the, some of these wars or bring them to a conclusion and move the region to a better place. One of the things Tunisia seems to have done well, uh, that's something that uh, countries in the region generally uh, have a poor record with, is gender equality. Mm -hmm. Is this something that we can count on uh, improving as, as these individual countries find uh, solid governments, solid democracies that mature? Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, the empowerment of women is a natural historical process uh, parallel to the empowerment of people. And this is happening through advances in technology and communication, as well as general, in countries where it's happening, general economic advancement, sort of when the tide rises, it, it raises all boats and educational opportunities and so on. Uh, so there is something historic and inevitable about the empowerment of people versus governments, and half of those people are women, so the empowerment of women. Mm -hmm. And this is an empowerment of women in societies that, like all traditional societies previously in the past, generally had obviously a patriarchal, patriarchal structure in which women uh, had a secondary role. So that is a sort of a historic continuum. 
But what you're seeing uh, in the various Arab countries is this great contestation about the role of women. Mm -hmm. Tunisia had the advantage of, during the days of the Bourguiba di uh, dictatorship, uh, one of the positive things that, that Bourguiba did was legislate equality for women, pass a lot of laws that that he could pass because you know he was he was the ruler and and there wasn't complicated by other other movements. So that really gave Tunisian women a great head start. Uh, I think the fact that they're very close to Europe and France, many of them were educated there. There's also a strong sort of European uh, element to that uh, strong feminist awareness. And women in Tunisia, credit to them, have been super organized and super brave and courageous. Uh, and they've done much more for the issues of women than other empowered women in other parts of the Arab world who haven't really organized as much as women. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, in other parts of the, uh, of the Middle East, you're seeing a patriarchal backlash. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood movement, in general, part of it is a, an attempt to reassert old, old patriarchies mm -hmm. against this troubling rise of women, troubling to men who are used to playing a dominant role. Uh, ISIS has taken it to the extreme by effectively, you know, enslaving women, uh, uh, selling them, and really not even treating them as human beings, treating them as chattel. Mm -hmm. uh, so the rise of women, in a sense, their empowerment is a historical process, but like all empowerment, it leads to contestation and in some cases conflict. I think in the long run, you know, publics will win, women will win but the long run could be painful and could be difficult. Well, Paul Salem, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thanks, man. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. <laughs>